One of our pupils, Susan Foreman, came into this yard. Really? In here? Young man, is it reasonable to suppose that anybody would be inside a cupboard like that? Mm. What do you say, Perry? We can go on nature walks, have picnics, and jolly evenings around the campfire. Gentlemen, I've got news for you. This lighthouse is under attack, and by morning we might all be dead. It's a brilliant idea. It's so simple, only you could have thought of it. Oh. I'm the doctor. These are my new best friends. I'm the doctor, and if there's one thing I can do, it's talk. This is the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast with your host, Eric Branson. My dear, I don't think he's as stupid as he seems. My dear, nobody could be as stupid as he seems. Now drop your weapons, or I'll kill him with this deadly jelly, baby. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. On this podcast, we travel all of time and space discussing Doctor Who. In a completely random order, this week we land on episode 4, Ark of Infinity, The Pirate Loop, and The Fountains of Forever. More like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. I'm going to need a swap team ready to mobilise street-level maps covering all of Florida, a pot of coffee, 12 jammy dodgers, and a fez. An apple a day keeps the, uh... No, never mind. Allons-y. I'm sorry? It's French. Well, let's go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast, the Doctor Who podcast where we explore the worlds of Doctor Who in a completely random order. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. Um, Glad to have you. And if it's not your first time joining us here in the Police Box in the Junkyard, we would like to welcome you back. And also, I'd like to take a second to explain a couple of small changes that are going to be happening this month. Um, Last couple of months, I guess. It was meant to be one month, but took a little longer than I had anticipated to put the shows together. But the last month, we had separated our show out into three different sections, which comprised our first three episodes. And that was a review of a television story, um, the Tom Baker story, uh, The Sunmakers. We reviewed a um, Big Finish audio adventure, the Dalek Empire for The Fearless. And we reviewed our um did a quick review of the children's pop-up book doctor who space travels those were each presented as their own separate episode and are available on soundcloud spotify uh, podcast addict stitcher radio all the places that you can get the police box in the junkyard podcast um so please go check those out if any of that sounds interesting to you however what we have changed this time is we are going to be doing a bit of a longer show format, and I'm actually going to jam-pack it full and put all three of those things into one big monthly extravaganza of Doctor Who-ness. And um, hopefully that will be more enjoyable for everybody and also helps me kind of organize everything and um, hopefully get them done in a little more timely manner. However, this this show is my second podcast. It's a labor of love, and I apologize to all of you out there listening that I can't you know, join you to chat a little more often, but it is probably going to be only coming once a month at this point, or maybe even a little bit longer than that. Um, Seems to be about the time it takes me to put everything together to read and prepare and, you know, all that stuff. There is a little bit of work that goes into this stuff. It's all fun. Hate to even call it work, but it does take some preparation to get into our podcast. So before I blabber on uh, forever and ever here, I do need to introduce you to the most important person, um, that I really couldn't be doing this podcast without, and that is the voice of my TARDIS, my traveling companion, my friend and yours, Emma. How are you doing, Emma? I am incapable of human emotion, but I guess in this day and age that means I'm doing better than most. 
I am Emma and of course I am not actually a person but a speech-to-text protocol and Emma is simply an acronym that stands for East of Vulmacor's Munch Apricots. So on the menu this week we are going to be looking at the Arc of Infinity, which is the TV story starring the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison. Joining me for that chat will be friends of the podcast and friends, soon to be friends of yours, Larry Van Mersbergen from the Doctor Who Collectors podcast and Asad Kishji from, um, well... Hopefully a podcast of his own in the near future. As he said, he has an interest in starting one. But a friend of mine from um, the Chicago TARDIS convention. And um, yeah, glad to have both of them here. It's an interesting discussion, and I can't wait to get to that. Uh, we're going to be looking at the audio it book, The Pirate Loop by Simon Garrier and read by Freema Agyeman. So that is a adaptation of a BBC book. Um, done for BBC Audio that we are doing as our audio adventure review for this week. And after that, uh, we will have a review of the 10th Doctor um, Titan Comics Volume 3, which is titled The Fountains of Forever. And joining me for that conversation will be our old friend David Andrews and Asad Kisji. Again, um, good to have both of them. And another, again, another um, great conversation. Uh, I do have one piece of bad news when it comes to the Fountains of Forever review is that I was uh, workshopping using some new software and accidentally lost or did not record. I don't know what old man mistake, I suppose. Basically, I screwed up and <laughs> deleted the first portion of that interview or of that discussion and uh, unfortunately will not be able to present it to you. However, the majority of it is intact and there and it's a great discussion and I'm looking forward to bringing that to you as well. Yeah, so it's going to be a big, uh, long, um, exciting episode, and I can't wait to get to it. So, um, yeah, let's go ahead, and we've cut through all the red tape. And, uh, Emma, are you ready to go? I was born ready. She does all the work anyway, so um, we'll... Uh, you better believe it. Yeah, so let's uh, pull that, push that button, pull the crank, jiggle the handle, whatever it is in our TARDIS that gets us going, and we're going to dive right into the Ark of Infinity. Don't worry, I got this. He doesn't even know how to operate this thing. Arc of Infinity starring Peter Davison as the Fifth Doctor was written by Johnny Byrne and directed by Ron Jones. It originally aired as four episodes broadcast between the 3rd and 12th of January 1983. According to a history by Lars Pearson and Lance Parkin this story takes place in Amsterdam circa 1983. And also on Gallifrey in the recent historical period. A synopsis from the back of the DVD. Traveling with Nyssa in the TARDIS, the Doctor is attacked by a malign entity, a being of pure antimatter seeking to cross the dimensions. Although the invader is successfully repelled, the TARDIS is immediately recalled to Gallifrey, where the High Council of Time Lords sentence the Doctor to be executed to prevent any further attempts at bonding. It seems there is a traitor on Gallifrey, and what links the renegade in the disappearance of Tegan's cousin in Amsterdam. Two fates intertwined must battle for the future of the entire universe. Tegan Javanka. The space-time parameters of the Matrix have been invaded by a creature from the antimatter world. I am not of your dimension, Time Lord. Who are you? We saw the Doctor. You can't! Executing me will not alter the fact there's a traitor at work on Gallifrey! Come on, let's get out of this hellhole! Omega must be found and stopped. Drop it! Or the Earth Woman dies! Hey everyone, and welcome to our 
review of The Ark of Infinity, starring Peter Davison as the fifth doctor. And uh, with me today on the panel, I have um, two illustrious guests. Um, I have from the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, Larry Van Mersbergen has returned to the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Welcome. Glad to be back. Thank you. <laughs> good, to, good to talk to you again. And Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for returning. So you'll, this mm -hmm. is a two for two on TV reviews for, for us. So yeah, it's been a, a slow moving podcast, but I, we're ironing out the kinks and hopefully we will um, be figuring that out. So, uh, and, and mm -hmm. also joining me, as you heard elsewhere in this episode, is uh, Dr. Asad. Oh Kishki. my God, I did it again. <laughs> Kishki, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Ah, one of these days, one of these days, I'm going to get it. Asad Kishki, you just have to keep for... inviting me back. Until you I get will, it right. and, and you know, <laughs> uh, the fifth or sixth or seventh time, I'll probably get it, get it right. I'm sorry. Being somebody who has gone my whole life with people, you know, doing that to my last name, I, I just, I, I feel terrible about doing it to somebody else's. So, anyway, that's uh, welcome back. <laughs> I appreciate you being here, and uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the Ark of Infinity. And this was the, I thought I had all of my info right here, but I have a walking encyclopedia uh, with us on the show here. So Larry, this was the season premiere of which season of Doctor Who? Uh, this would be um, 20. 20, season 20, because yeah. uh, this was the 20th year, 1983. That's right. Um, 20th anniversary. So it was uh, a, a, a real, um, a real eye-opener because if uh, <laughs> I, I actually saw this one in 1983 at a Doctor Who convention, my first oh, wow. Doctor Who convention, the Very North cool. American Comic-Con uh, in Des Plaines, Illinois, awesome. and John Nathan Turner brought with him Ark of Infinity and the King's Demons. Okay. And so. Peter Davison and Ian Martyr and Janet Fielding were there as well. Yeah. So I got to watch it on the big screen and it was uh, well ahead of the Chicago broadcast um, on television. And so it was a really, uh, you know, you, you glued to the edge of your seat because this was brand new stuff. I think, I think we saw, I think I saw Ark of Infinity before I saw Castro Valva. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, so. cause it hadn't, the Davison's had not aired here. So it was right, definitely. Yeah, it took quite a it, long time back then to get them turned around or for us broadcast. Yeah. Yeah, if they so were it, if, if they were even doing it in order, because I know in a lot of markets that wasn't even the case. So. <laughs> right, and in Chicago, they they uh, to be honest, it was really a nail biter because what they did is they said, yeah, we just got these Davisons. However, we also got the John Pertwees, so we decided we're going to start with the Pertwees, <laughs> go through the entire Baker run, and oh. then I'm, we're like. Come Nothing on, like man! Suspense. I've seen the, like you, yeah, you just like saw just, Tom Baker regenerate and back to the beginning of Pertwee. back to the beginning <laughs> of, of and, and not even the beginning of Pertwee. We went back to Inferno. I'm like, oh, oh. Right. <laughs> so it was it was like okay, I guess uh, we're gonna it's gonna take a year to get to the John Pertwee episodes, but we finally or the Davison episodes. But but seeing this one and of course uh, with John Nathan Turner providing some um, talking points after, after the viewing, it was really quite eye opening. And, uh, for, for me, <laughs> it, it was a great story. I mean, yeah. with a, with a stellar cast of people, um, Dr. Who veteran actors in there, Michael Goff, mm -hmm. um, Paul, uh, Paul Jericho, of course, uh, will return in the five doctors, 
Colin Baker, of course, uh, yeah. uh, which he got hired from being in Blake Seven, the city at the end of the world. Um, and uh, Leonard Sachs, uh, who was in uh, The Myth Makers, I believe. And yeah. Ian, yeah, they brought a couple Ian Collier, um, who played Omega, was a steward in The Time Monster. Or the, okay. uh, yeah, so it just he was one of the one of the guys that got aged to death, basically. So it was kind right. of a kind of a cool thing to see, and of course, um, just you know, and a, a very interesting idea to bring back on an anniversary story, um, Omega, who was the villain in the tenth anniversary story. Yeah, and so, um, that was kind of the season twenty. And I don't know if you have any insight, seeing that John Nathan Turner uh, mm -hmm. actually you saw him speak about this. Yeah. Wasn't that season twenty's entire like premise was every one of these stories were going to bring back a classic villain like that yes. was going to be there? Yeah, their he thing. wanted to get back to the to that era of bringing the old you know kind of bridging the gap because he thought the series was getting a little too far away. Um, thinking about like the last Tom Baker season, there was really nothing that tied it to the old season, except for Tom Baker himself. Mm -hmm. And he wanted Peter Davison's doctor to be a little more active. He was very passive in his first season and he yeah. wanted him to be a little more active. And of course his third season, he gets even more, you know, intense um, yeah. and kind of trying to become, you know, kind of channeling that William Hartnell side uh, versus the Troughton side. Right. So it was kind of an interesting story, but uh, that was what John, uh, um, you know, and, and he was just such a, an amazing man to listen to. I know I'm sorry, he's, he's no longer with us, but uh, mm -hmm. just, just said how much he really enjoyed directing each episode and he was really involved in all the processes. Um, Arc of Infinity is the second story to be filmed outside of uh, London. For yeah. instance. Yeah. It's and a city of death and, of death. Now, so, and yeah. what was what was frustrating for he said the writing process is that the producer said, Well, you, you gotta make Amsterdam a, a you know, something critical to the plot, and they really didn't. <laughs> it just was where they happened to be. Yeah. Just say, so, hey, look, Amsterdam's yeah. pretty. There we're here and uh, you're here, so, and, so, and and of course I think I believe the next one is Seville for the two doctors. Okay. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I know they do a lot of location. For that lands a road for Planet of Fire. Planet of Fire. That's right. Oh yeah. Oh, that's right. right. That's yep. right. Yep. Yeah. Planet of Fire as well. Great. Asad, what is your um, kind of personal history with this one? When did you first see the Infinity? It's interesting. Um, I, the one interesting thing about this is that, like, well, I mean, I was a Doctor Who fan while I was still in Pakistan, and we they weren't showing the show there, so I was kind of dependent upon episodes being taped from elsewhere and coming and seeing. So I had occasionally a kind of random selection of stuff. And that included right. episode one of Arc of Infinity, which was taped by some relative in Dubai. Mm -hmm. I don't know, don't know who it was. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually ended up seeing episode one of Arc of Infinity many times. So okay. that had to be kind of uh, a <laughs> I mean, I mean, the whole situation sounds sounds stressful to me. Like you, uh, you know, you first of all have a hodgepodge of of random episodes as your entire experience or availability of Doctor Who, and uh, you get an episode one of a series, and then nothing <laughs> nothing to yeah. follow. It would be a uh, I'd be that's uh, quite a quite a cliffhanger too at the end of episode yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, my my entire experience with it was I did, you know, when I first got into Doctor Who, I got into Doctor Who via the 2005 series with Eccleston and, um, you know, got obsessed 
obsessive about it and went back and watched from the beginning like I do you know everything I get into and uh saw this one on my watch through it was not one that imprinted heavily on me as being a favorite or anything it was fine uh it kind of fell out of my memory it came up on the random I mean I guess I always remembered the little things about you know oh it's the one where Omega comes back and it's the one where Peter Davison's on Gallifrey and it's the one um with Colin Baker uh, so I remember those things about it, but um, going back and revisiting it, I think I enjoyed it a, a lot more than I gave it credit for that first that first time around. And as much as I always am kind of a cheerleader for the watch through, um, there there's there's a good point that I, I will detract from it a little bit is because I think you can get a little burned out, and sometimes you miss out on some things that maybe. Um, you would have been enjoying had you not been, you know, consuming Doctor Who every second of your life, <laughs> you know, but anyway. Uh, so well, yeah, that's kind of my personal history with it, but. Uh, I've been watching the show since I was five, so it's been a part <laughs> of my life for a long time now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was an interesting, like, year or so of my life when, like, you know, I, when I was doing the watch through of the whole thing, because, like, every time I was watching something outside of, you know, sitting down with my wife and watching a movie, I was watching Doctor Who. I was just kind of going through. Mm -hmm. And um, it's an incredibly rewarding experience to watch it all in order. Um, but I think that's a once in a lifetime thing. I'm not sure I'm ever going to go back and approach it that way. Like I like to now be able to pick and choose my, you know, things. And I think I enjoy them in, you know, you get, they're a little more enjoyable independently. So, some stories, some stories are great no matter what. But mm -hmm. some are, you know, on their own can be a little more enjoyable than yeah. watching them through the whole series. But um, so, yeah, like we talked about, this was a one of many returns. We see the return of, you know, classic series villain Omega in this. Uh, we also see the return of Tegan, who wasn't gone for very long. But <laughs> yeah, and I, I asked that question to John Nathan Turner. It's like, I, I know she, you know, you said she was left, left the show in Time Flight or was left behind in Time Flight what was the story and he said he couldn't talk about it so a few years ago i asked janet fielding at uh, chicago tardis so what happened and she said it was a contract yeah. <laughs> um issue and uh her agent had not fully you know done her due diligence apparently and she this is before she signed on with jackie lane <laughs> so I think most of the Doctor Who people are with Jackie Lane now. So uh, since she was a Doctor Who companion, now a uh, artist representative. So um, that was, uh, you know. Got a visitor. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> he did that last time too. Yeah. Um, for you listeners out there, Milton always joins me on my on my. Yeah, uh, so Larry's cat has our, our, become our fourth guest. Yeah. On He's a good guy. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Janet said basically that they had worked it out. And so she was able to come back, but she couldn't travel with them, so to speak. So they, they had to write it into the story that she'd lost her job at the airline. And so to cheer her up, she's going to fly to Amsterdam and visit her cousin. <laughs> Apparently that was the, that was what was written in. Yeah. Just, just by an unfortunate coincidence has gotten caught up in the machinations of Omega. Yeah. Yes. Have, what are the odds? Back together with the doctor. Not <laughs> and of course, you know, they happen to be in the crypt and they read her mind to go, oh, she knows the doctor. What a coincidence. You know, and yeah, not, there was not a, contrived at all. <laughs> no, and just and one one of those things are like, okay. And um, but uh but there are there are a lot of I've I've read a lot of backstory on this, and of course they really wanted Louise Jameson to be in mm -hmm. this episode. She was not available. So they only have a couple of lines 
yeah. the doctor asking about her, but she was intended to be written into the story. Mm-hmm. So, so some of the, I guess some of the lines were rewritten for Nissa, which makes it, uh, so if you watch it again, some of her stuff is a little aggressive, yeah, which, like was, I, in, which was intended for Louise Jameson. Yeah. The, the throne room stuff, the, uh, gun wielding and attacking stuff i believe was supposed to be leela's stuff completely Um, out of her character for nissa but that's what they had to do because they couldn't get her she was uh she was locked in a project and just couldn't get away and somewhere and of course arc of infinity was filmed after snake dance Mm -hmm. yep where she had already they had already done a new costume right which they janet fielden started started with her new costume in in arc of infinity but uh, Nissa did. Nissa was, yeah. Uh, yeah, Sarah Sutton's was saved for uh, the following. But speaking of Nissa, since you brought brought her up, um, yeah. she is uh, given a lot to do compared to almost any other ser- or any other uh, story that she is in or as a companion of the Doctor. Uh, she really has a lot of like emotional like scenes in this and has a lot more to do as a character than, un- I mean, unfortunately, I think she's kind of underwritten a lot of times and kind of ends up being the um kind of odd companion out many times in, in her stories which is unfortunate because they, they put tegan back in and i think you it ends up happening again po- after mm-hmm. this but in arc of affinity as a solo companion she really shines and gets a lot to do so maybe it's a good thing that louise jameson wasn't available for this because it got her to you know really have some interesting yeah. emotional scenes but what do you guys think of nissa in arc of infinity and and do you think it's a you know kind of her standout performance or compared with her other stuff she benefits, she benefits from a lot of things like the one is written by johnny byrne who created her so mm-hmm. he wanted to do do well by her um the other companions are all missing by either yeah. smashing into the earth or being left behind accidentally <laughs> um so yeah and i guess that um from what i understand peter davison and sarah sutton also got along pretty well so mm-hmm. they've got a good yeah. dynamic and um Johnny Byrne in some of the, um, in the DVDs um, special <laughs> behind the scene things, he does comment that um, because Nissa sort of likes, look upon, looks upon the doctor as a very sort of father figure and she's already lost her actual father and her planet and her quadrant and everything. So when the doctor gets sentenced to death, she gets really, goes, that's why she goes really berserk and not, uh, not her usual cool clinical self. Yeah, it's almost an act of desperation. Like, no, I'm not going to lose another, you know, person. Like, yeah, yeah another father, almost like. <laughs> In some ways, I I don't know if, um, and this is just a hypothesis. I don't know if um, Nissa also suffers from the fact that she is a very technical person. So it could be kind of like what happened with Liz, Liz Shaw back in the John Pertwee days. That this wasn't somebody who would stand around saying that you know. So what is going on? What is this? She would know much better about what's going on yeah so that might be yeah, why the, it also gets a little and the reason it, it works in this story is because he you know he's taken her to gallifrey so he can now she can now be the what's going on doctor character because she is unfamiliar with gallifrey as a culture and as a so it gives her that ability to play normal companion um but still be you know the smart you know you know an equal of understanding to the doctor at times um yeah which always has kind of mixed results as a companion because you, in a way you do need that person to be like, you know, the reflection, the, the character that's, you know, us, the everyday modern earthling who doesn't understand all of these things going on. But, um, 
but yeah, no, I thought it, 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 um, I watched the, the, the interview you were talking about with Johnny Byrne on the DVD as well. Uh, he had some interesting things to say about the script and I had something Larry said earlier reminded me of that, the, you know, kind of just pigeonholing Amsterdam in and it sounds like the initial concept that he had for the script was um, kind of cut in half and mixed with Amsterdam. Like when they decided like, we're gonna go on location and shoot this, like we're taking it to Amsterdam, please write that in somehow. It just kind of, um, yeah, he had to share his story with that. And I think he feels like it hurt the story quite a bit, but. Well, the, the story that I read was the BBC had just signed some amazing deal with Amsterdam for like housing and ho hotel rates and travel. And so they said, yeah, well, let's go, we'll cheap, go there. Think, like, right, know, it was so. super cheap. So that's why they said, we'll go to Amsterdam. And, and we'll do it. They were filming another show there also. So. Yeah, they were, yeah. Which one? I can't think of it, but I just remember they had a deal. So they said, go there and, and just, do that and um they had to kind of write their way through and i know um john nathan turner was also a little irritated by that because we could have done this in london we could have done this anywhere because all we needed was a basement to shoot in for the crypt <laughs> yeah. and that was streets all to run around in for the chase at the end yeah. right he, yeah. he said there were a couple of issues with the shooting in the crypt because um they had to set up lights in there and there was no electrical. So they had to run electrical from the street, you know, cause who puts outlets in a crypt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but th things like that. And I, I, things you don't think about when you're watching the show, like how, how do they do that? And, you know, setting up the, you know, how they did the studio. And of course um, the newer release of Arkham City has CGI effects. Yes. Um, they've yeah. improved some of that a little bit, although the original effects aren't bad for 83. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but uh, they, they definitely improve uh, the, the feel of it yeah and, i forgot to turn them on for the first two episodes and then i realized oh wait there's a special edition effect so i did turn them on for the latter two so i'm not sure <laughs> i i didn't notice a whole lot of standout i noticed like a laser blast and stuff were different it, but it's but. not as dramatic as the day of the daleks when they did that yeah, one where yeah. you had nicholas briggs and it was a much better the, product the, yeah was it the opening shot of um What's the Santaran perfectly the Time Warrior one? Yeah, where they have the whole spit ship landing is totally redone, which looks great, but it's yeah, it's very obviously not from the original show. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a I lot that yeah. I watched them with the original ethics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I did I did like as a like rule the first time I watched through I did and now that I'm going back and revisiting stuff like I'm like oh I think right. I'll check this out see how, how they did and I honestly didn't notice a huge like like some yeah some laser gun stuff that was different and, yeah but um since we're to just other characters I, we got to talk about uh commander mm -hmm. maxwell because uh yeah by uh colin yes. baker and is a very commanding and great character that he plays uh in this would you yeah, john jonathan turner actually addressed that too because he said he he liked the character that he played in blake seven if you remember he was a pretty rough character if you've ever seen that episode mm -hmm. and at points during yeah. the production he actually told him to tone it down a bit that he was a little over the over the top uh in his like you know you know brusque i'd say highly military you know business and i'm ready to kill you uh like you know he goes to get the um the operator to get the recall the tardis he goes this i need to authorize this arrest him or like, shoot him. It was like that kind of attitude. It's like, hold on, hold on. You know, not so fast. I got, I got, you know, this doesn't happen very often. In fact, yeah. it's happened twice in all of our history. So you're, you know, it's, it's a, there's a lot of that. And so, um, and of course this appearance by Colin Baker does guarantee him 
the next uh, spot as the doctor. That yeah. was although um, he he was under the distinct belief that it disqualified him from ever playing the doctor. So well, that's what okay. he thought. But later, um, Jonathan Turner said, "No, no, no, you're my guy." In fact, he's the I believe he's the only um, actor to get the job without an audition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. he he got the job. I, I, I Maxwell was his audition for <laughs> Maxwell. Yeah, was his audition and. I, I know I spoke to him. Uh, I got to sit next to him at breakfast one year, and it was just a great conversation with Colin Baker. He was so uh, so open to so many different, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, I think about it. This is asking these questions. And I said, well, I saw again another thing, too. He goes, oh, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's just such a, a, a wonderful guy to talk to. But mm. and, and you knowing him now, you wouldn't think he was that rough, gruff character. But that's he was told to play the part like he played it in Blake seven. Yeah. So that's what he was trying to be the bad guy, so to speak, even though he was just working for the Castellan who, you know, is. He's a very, you know, he's a very different sort of bad guy in this than he was when he played Bayban the butcher. Yeah. So, <laughs> this one is more just, you know, I am just following orders. <laughs> yeah. To, um, to a T, like he is that kind of guy. Like that is, you know, He's got his orders and he's going to carry it out no matter what. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Including at the end of episode one, where he just shoots the doctor point blank and we don't know if he's killed him or if he's, because we know that they want to do that. Um, right. But, you know, they're saving him for a formal execution. So, you know, you talk about Nyssa being introduced to a culture now that is now clearly barbarian. Mm -hmm. You know, we've, we've pulled your TARDIS home. We're going to put you in a, de you know, a dematerialization chamber and, and that's that and she's like what yeah this, <laughs> this is, i always think it's interesting and they do this well with gallifrey in the classic series and i suppose every time they've really used gallifrey yeah. is it's always that like you know staunch arist aristocratic society just thinly veiling the barbarism like underneath you know which yeah, obviously is you know kind yeah. of the incentive for the doctor to flee in the first place we think but. yeah it's it kind of it goes with the story that i don't want to be here this is <laughs> not home to me and that that's you know, it's very heavy, especially, you know, you think about the invasion of time, which is, I think, the last time they were on Gallifrey. Um, and it was, it was a it was pretty light compared to Arc of Infinity. The, the High Council was extremely heavy handed. Yeah. But you will see a lot of these High Council members return in the Five Doctors. Right. Well, and speaking of High Council, I did want to talk a little bit about Michael Goff being in this. Yes. You mentioned him oh, earlier gosh, yes. as well. And he's he's an actor I miss because he was, you know, Alfred for me when I was growing up, you know, in the Batman movies. So uh, that's the first Wonder thing I remember Wonder. him from. And then and then obviously <laughs> uh, uh, finding him in Doctor Who was a pleasant surprise through the these that and, and this series. Of, uh, although I do feel like he's a bit underused here. So... Um, he is, yeah. He he's he's a great a great actor. And um if if you ever get a chance to watch the final part of the Celestial Toymaker and see him do that role, it's it's a really mm -hmm. amazing role. And unfortunately, Big Finish wanted to get him to do the nightmare affair and yeah. he was just too old and he said, I Same. I can't do it. And yeah. so they got uh, they got a, a good actor to do it. It was a guy from Robots of Death that did the voice, but um but yeah, his his whole um, counselor Hedden are, are you know, you, and you don't know it's him for a while. You know, right. they keep that a big secret. And of course, they even change his voice. They give him a little helium to raise his voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought he was he wasn't. You know, they should have used a, a guy of that caliber. Should have had a little more 
prominence. Yeah, um, and even even once he gets outed as he's he's the bad guy, I feel like they just didn't give like he really has the chops to you know really give him a good bad guy scene, and it's not. Yeah, it's not everything it could have been. Any thoughts you have, Vasad, about uh, either Colin Baker or Michael Goff's characters? And... Um, nothing additional to that, I think. I mean, um, if I guess maybe after watching so much TV, when he's the only one who's kind of on the doctor's side, you're immediately thinking, hmm. Mm, yeah, <laughs> shadowy. Like, I mean, <laughs> obviously they want us to point, everyone be pointing at the castle on, right? But he's so obviously not going to be the guy because of how he is, you know, he's, we don't like yeah, him, I mean, but he's not going to be the traitor, you know? It's like another of those times when, you know, he's a great actor and I wish he had more time. It's kind of like Anthony Stewart head when he came. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm still mad that in one episode they used David Warner and Liam Cunningham. Oh yeah, one yeah. part episode. It was like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, diminishing both of them down to yeah, yes. competing so, with each other for screen so, time. So another thing I, I did want to. I mean, his role is kind of limited, but he does what he's got to do. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think Colin Baker's fantastic in this. Um, yes. And like, so I, I kind of understand what they were, you know, thinking when they're like, "Well, who's our next guy?" I mean, why his name would come up right away. Um, yeah, he's especially because they. I think they had the idea they were going to go with someone a little more gruff, and he's just so good at doing that with this character. So, I did want to talk about. We did talk about briefly about the computer animated special effects in the special edition, but some of the things that weren't um, computer animated. I want to talk about the Ergon in this. Uh, it is a one of the monsters, and there it seems that there's a few from the John Nathan Turner era that really gets brought up as you know kind of being shabby monsters, like not so good. This. Uh, this one, including, I think, some comments from Johnny Byrne about how much he disliked the the costume for Ergon. What are your guys' thoughts about uh, the Ergon costume in this? Uh, is it as bad as everyone makes it out to be? Yes. <laughs> it's, a it's a guy in a bird yeah. suit. I mean, the yeah. big bird could have walked out of that thing and it would have been, really? More threatening. It's, it's, it's like you couldn't see that, you know, when especially when, when Colin Frazier is... is hit with the beam and hypnotized of course that's also the worst acting i've ever seen for a hypnotized guy the uh, uh, it was <laughs> really it was, like, yeah, it was really bad but yeah the bird the bird creature was was not good <laughs> i actually thought it was not too bad especially mm -hmm. in the dark i mean okay the yeah. wobbly head is a little in the, wobbly in the dark, it, in the dark it was, it's not too bad yeah. That's true. But, uh, when, when, in the, when in the light's light, on. it becomes like, ugh. <laughs> and I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm looking, yeah, I haven't seen um, the Warriors of Deep DVD yet, but I'm looking forward to what Johnny Byrne would have to say about the Mirka. Yeah, that's that's another legendary. It's another story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if legendary, it can be used that way, but yeah. Um, In terms of effects, actually, I did think that that's uh, pretty neat, The um, just the inverted effect of uh, Omega when he's yes. uh, talking to Hayden, because again, the actual Omega in full in our universe in color is kind of like, yeah, okay, that's a bodysuit. But yeah. um, the inverted uh, one actually comes out pretty neat looking, I thought. Yeah, I thought so too. And the, the costumes themselves, like from before you have to like see them moving around and in action, um, even the Ergon costume, I think is the design of it's kind of cool, but the second somebody has to like, you know, move around in the big plastic parts and it looks like he's gonna, you know, run into everything and you can tell the guy can't see anything and it's like, it becomes very unthreatening. If you see it there in the dark, you know, like you were saying, just kind of standing still or a photo of it, it's, it's not a bad design for a monster. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the Omega suit, it looks great. 
when yeah. he's just kind of sitting in a throne or like in the inverse but once he starts moving around in it it's like rubber suit <laughs> a rubber bodysuit so um i did notice like when he there's some moments uh when he's uh really st- like starting to cross over um in episode four um when he starts like almost melting and kind of like the, the special effects like uh are actually kind of a little bit gross and kind of mm-hmm. um interesting that they went that route like it it felt a little like outside of uh the style of you know doctor who at that time like to put something a little disconcerting on there um kind of a little yucky that's that's necessarily the case because like um like in the visitation the pereleptil's melting is a little yeah that's similar too yeah just kind of oozing and resurrection of the resurrection of the dogs was my other thought yeah yeah that that was actually actually, people there there were complaints about that one to the bbc because maybe that's what got yeah got them all fired up the yeah So that uh, beep, unfortunately, means that we are running out of time. Um, I do want to, uh, before we go, uh, get your guys' final thoughts on the Arc of Infinity. And, of course, like we have to do on uh, all of these podcasts, uh, we uh, need to give it a grade. So I think this time we're going to do grade out of uh, five ergons. Out of five ergons, uh, what would you (laughs) give the Arc of Infinity? So, yeah, final thoughts and a grade. What what do you think? Uh, Asad, I'll start with you. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more than I remember from having seen it before. Um, and for some reason that in episode one, the dialogue between the two friends really struck me as being very naturalistic. I, I don't know, I was really kind of, really came across that these two guys are good friends who know each other well. And I don't know, you don't always get that in like mm-hmm. such a brief appearance of minor characters. Um, but yeah, we're all uh, pretty good. There are other things like, um, we didn't even discuss the long chase to Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> There's stuff on my list we didn't get to, but uh, yeah, such as yeah, but no, it's a, it's a, it's an entertaining. I would uh, give it, uh, but I think I may go again with like a three point five ergons <laughs> out, out of five. Rare. How about you, Larry? I would give it a solid four ergons out of five. And I'll tell you what, one thing we didn't mention too is Peter Davison doing the dual role at the end. Yeah, and and yeah. he did a fantastic job. And and of course, you know, the, the whole split screen thing looked pretty natural. Um, and of course, the, the whole idea that Omega himself being this, this madman, you know, who tried to destroy the universe before and now wants to come back and just says, I, I just want to, you know, he smiles when he sees like nature and yeah. feels a flower and the does all that stuff with the kids. And, so, yeah. you know, just the, the looking at the children and there's that, that smile and it's like, he has a heart, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, the quad, the quad uh, radiation wasn't working. So, you know, there's another new term for, for that. And, and, and of course, not even mentioning the fact that, you know, Peter Davison had to basically dismiss the fact that, well, like you said, guns couldn't be fired in here. And well, ever since the Cybermen shot this thing up and, you know that kind of thing and so they were trying to they kind of messed up on some continuity but uh that's that's the way doctor who goes unfortunately it's timey-wimey nowadays yeah but uh but a great story to start off uh the season and uh it was one of the first peter davison stories i ever got to see so i i thought it was strong and it certainly you know kept me on my seat from 83 to keep going with it so yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I, I generally agree with, uh, we're going <laughs> to come in on this one fairly evenly as well, but it's not it's not going to let end up on my top 10 favorites, but I did enjoy it a lot more than the, I think than the first time I saw it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I thought I thought the um, the story was interesting. I liked uh, compared to some um, classic series and not that I've ever really found it boring. There's that criticism that classic series is boring for some reason. But it, this one really was packed full of stuff going on. Like mm-hmm. it had it had two different stories in two different locations. I thought that was kind of cool. And it kind of cross cut between those two uh, stories and had, um, you know, fairly interesting characters. I totally agree with you. I thought that the the for as little screen time as they have together, um, you know, Colin and uh, what's his name? Robin. Um, Robin. Yeah. Have, have a good uh, chemistry together. And yeah, they seem natural. And there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that are really well done here. Um, the whole like uh, Gallifrey thing, I think ends up being, or Gallifrey's plot ends up being a little um, disappointing just because I, I do think they underused Michael Goff. I think they could have done a little more with that. Maybe it's a time thing, or maybe it just, maybe they just had to get more Amsterdam in there or whatever. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And the chase, too bad we didn't talk a little more about that, but uh, the chase is great. Um, I love the, uh, what is it like green cornflakes or whatever, when he's on his face melting. Um, yeah. I love it. I, you know, and people tend to like, you know, make jokes out of kind of the, the cheapy special effects, but I really love the ones that work. Like, and you can tell it's something that something they just, you know, came up with in the workshop. And I think that one's actually one that works, even though I can, you know, I pretty much tell what they've done, but it works very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, being uh, long-winded about it, but uh, I think I'd give this a 3.5 Ergons as well. And uh, it was a pleasant surprise because it's not one I remembered enjoying a whole lot the first time. And uh, I did enjoy it quite a bit more this time around. So um, I still uh, am not sure this was the greatest way of handling returning of Tegan, but it was, you know, I guess that's just the way contracts worked back then. I mean, she was, she was on contract, got to get her work in, you know. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, contract expired and then contract renegotiated. So it's, uh, <laughs> right. it, yeah. it's a, it's an actor's, it's one of those things that actors have to go through. And uh, I, I've talked with a couple of Doctor Who actors who, you know, like, uh, Nicola Bryant, for instance, had a, a terrible time with her agent because she actually did work that she never got paid for. No, no. So, it, it, yeah, all, all the BBVE stuff out there the, that she did with uh, Colin Baker was produced by a friend of John Nathan Turner's, but she was never paid for it. Yeah. So her huh. agent kind of dropped the ball on that. But that's that's how it goes. But, uh, yeah, not the great way to handle that. And uh, But she came, she came back and stayed with it for, you know, another season. Well, on that note, I do want to thank you guys for being here. Um, I hope you guys will both come back and chat with us again uh, on Absolutely. the Junkyard <laughs> podcast. And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for doing this, and we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Thank Sounds you. good. Thank you. Hello, I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, host and producer of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcasts. Now that you're listening to a thorough discussion of random Doctor Who episodes, why not find them on the Target book range, or the hardcover, or anything else with Doctor Who? For all things Doctor Who collectibles, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and everywhere you find your Doctor Who podcasts. Also a proud member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. You're listening to Police Box in a Junkyard Podcast. You ask him, he may show it. He's simply 
Well, I hope everyone enjoyed the conversation about the Ark of Infinity. Um, next, we're on to this month's audio adventure. And that is, we or the randomizer selected for us this month, the audiobook of Doctor Who, The Pirate Loop, written by Simon Garrier and read by Martha Jones uh, actress Freema Adjaman. And um, this is produced by BBC Books or BBC Audio and is an adaptation of, of Garrier's um, prose novel, which he wrote for BBC Books. The Pirate Loop, written by Simon Garrier and read by Freema Agaman. Released by BBC Audio on two audio CDs in July 2008 and is an abridged audio reading of the new series novel. In 2017 was re-released as part of the 10th Doctor novels box set. The Doctor's been everywhere and everywhere in the whole of the universe and seems to know all the answers. But ask him what happened to the starship Brilliant and he hasn't the first idea. Did it fall into a sun or black hole? Was it shot down in the first moments of a galactic war? And what's this about a secret experimental drive? The Doctor is skittish, but if Martha is so keen to find out he'll land the TARDIS on the Brilliant, a few days before it vanishes, then they can see for themselves. Soon the Doctor learns the awful truth, and Martha learns that you need to be careful what you wish for. She certainly wasn't hoping for mayhem, death and badger-faced space pirates. Yeah, you heard that right. Badger-faced space pirates. A history by Lars Pearson and Lance Parkin dates the pirate loop as occurring in the year 3907. So the pirate loop. The pirate loop is um, a book, as I, I pointed out in the intro, that was written in prose by Simon Garrier for the BBC um new series adventures line and that's kind of a fan name or a fan uh, classification for all of the books novels that are written based on the post 2005 series so starting with the Eccleston um, uh, Ninth Doctor and Rose uh, novels and moving forward from there so pretty much everything that fits in the continuity of the modern series is considered a new series adventure uh, abbreviated NSA by um, you know Doctor Who nerds who need to classify all the books and such into certain categories which is which is a good thing i'm not <laughs> i'm not making fun i, I never would because i'm one of them um to keep it all straight because there's so much stuff out there um if you're not aware i mean just just google sometime how many doctor who novels there are i mean outside of the already hundreds of television episodes that we have and uh, hundreds um now audio adventures that we have we also have a, a plethora of uh, novels ad adaptations and such all the way back to the target books uh this audiobook is number 20 in the bbc new series adventure range and um it is an abridged version so they have abridged this novel to fit onto two cds and it runs about two uh, two and a half hours total um i did notice just right away when i jumped on the tardis wiki and started reading about uh the pirate loop that they did a bridge quite a bit of like background detail and some of the stuff that happens earlier early in the novel as well as some of the um events in the middle section as well it just abridged is a good word for it because i don't think that we lost any of the audiobook has lost any of the like real bones of the story it gets the humor it gets the situation um but there is some stuff missing um just just from reading the the synopsis i i myself have not actually read the book and we are basing this review entirely upon this audiobook so Another interesting thing about the audiobook, as we mentioned earlier, um, Martha Jones' actress, which was the 10th Doctor's second companion, Dr. Martha Jones, um, 
was played by Freema Adjaman in the series, and she is the reader for our audiobook here, and actually does a quite a good job at not only capturing Martha Jones as you would expect she would be able to do, but also capturing, you know, the Tenth Doctor, and um, and, and and never does she do, you know, a David Tennant impression. That's not really the way she reads the Tenth Doctor. It's just she gets enough of you know the character and kind of his energy and stuff to um you know she's not doing a, a play and doing voices and such she's she's reading an audiobook but she does a good job of getting the essence of those characters and things to come across along with the new characters we're introduced to this one's a good it's a good read it's a it's a fun book um so the, the story centers around the Doctor and Martha, as the synopsis said, um, trying to find out what happened to this starship Brilliant. And this is a pleasure cruise liner, um, similar, I, at least in my imagination, to the um, Titanic, but not one of Max Capricorn's boats that we uh, visit in the later David Tennant series, because, um, well, they haven't, honestly, they hadn't gotten to that part yet, but uh, ple- pleasure cruise liner, um, staffed by uh you know uh, servant robots that um you know are there to bend to humans every whim the thing about this pleasure liner that's a little different than ever is it has an experimental drive on it or engine drive um that skates the edges of the space-time continuum in order to travel great distances in very short periods of time um however the drive or engine, or whatever you want to call it, um, gets stuck or has a malfunction that causes the uh, Brilliant to be stuck in, like, one section of time. So it gets caught in a time loop that's a... I don't remember if it's a couple hours long, but enough so that people can, uh, you know, kind of be doing their own thing before they get reset, uh, but it's actually partially stuck in different time zones. So it... You know, you could be in one part of the ship which the the crew and the captain and such are stuck on the bridge that is um, flowing at one, you know, rate of time. Things are, you know, playing out at one speed. So something that takes five minutes on the bridge is actually occurring at a different rate of time elsewhere. So many, many hours are going by in other parts of the ship when, you know, only a couple of seconds are appearing there. Where there are breaks in the time-space continuum... Um, there are divisions in the ship, so there's like this gross scrambled, Garrier describes it as like scrambled egg type material that grows over the um, the fractures in, in the space-time continuum. However, the Doctor is able to pick his way through them um, and, you know, cross into the different time zones. So, um, yeah, in classic, you know, Doctor Who fashion, the Doctor and Martha get separated. She gets on one side of the... Well, I mean, they're separated basically because of going through a door. She gets on one side of the scrambled egg, and time is flowing at a different rate than uh, than it is on the other side. So she ends up, like, waiting and waiting and waiting for the Doctor, and he never shows up. But even though he's just on the other side of the door about to come through, he's, you know, opening it again and going to walk, you know, through the stuff um, right behind her. Because time is flowing at a different rate, rate he is um yeah it takes him hours to get there so by the time he gets there martha's already you know started on her own set of adventures aboard this ship um yeah so martha runs into the staff robots and is taken to the lounge where uh, most of the passengers at least that are in this section of the ship are you know living through this uh well attack by by space pirates um and the pirates are attacking in 
this time zone where they actually make it to the ship. So these are, these are as described in the synopsis, badger-faced space pirates. And they are very uh, fun characters, as are the majority of the um, passengers on the ship. Mrs. Wingsworth is the lead. Uh, she's a Ballyman, and they are described as orange and tentacles, orange with tentacles, and have uh, Mrs. Wingsworth personally has a flair for the dramatic. It's, she's, she's honestly what that means is she's quite a character. Um, she's very flamboyant. She's very snotty with the pirates. She's kind of over all of them. Um, she does think it's really great that they're having this fantastic adventure, but. Um, yeah, it, she's she's funny. She's she she adds a lot of comedy to it. She also uh, becomes you know, if at first she's a bit spiky and, and almost obnoxious, I, I think you you come to appreciate her uh, throughout the novel. So, um, the Badger Pirates are definitely fun characters, as I mentioned. Um, they have uh, kind of the first away team of pirates that evade invade the um, the lounge that you know Martha, when we first meet, are. Um, I think it's Dash and um, Jocelyn and Archie, um, but we get the the impression you know they're they're basically although they describe themselves as venture capitalists, they are pirates and they are um, genetically engineered badger faced pirates that uh, basically are created to be henchmen for hire, I believe is the way it goes. So yeah, as I mentioned, the, the bit of the prologue about the brilliant itself and kind of the the. We'll call it the pre-credits adventure, even though this is an audio story that, that doctor, the Doctor and Martha are having, where this whole thing about the brilliant comes up, is just kind of abridged away from this uh, this version of the story. Um, yeah, so anyway, I, I did, really didn't mean to dive deeply into a synopsis of this thing, as I do think it's worth checking out, and uh, I would like, you know, if you guys want to check out the audiobook yourself, I, I you know, will go on to recommend this. Um, it's... So yeah, I'm going to kind of stop with the moment-by-moment -moment synopsis. It's really not my intention of this review. Uh, I just kind of kind of wanted to give you a sense of the flavor of what's going on in this. You know, a, a large pleasure liner caught in different time zones. There's pirates. There's the bridge crew. There's the Balumans, uh, and There's the robots. Um, yeah, so the doctor, of course, you know, catches back up with Martha eventually and then, you know, try between all of them trying to figure out a way to get the ship all the time zones back together uh, and then of course deal with the conflict of the um, badger pirate attack so the doctor attempts to remove the brilliant from the time loop um, but through the meddling of the pirates and, and eventually the, the brilliant's own crew um, not listening to reason he's unable to actually save the experimental time space drive the engine that the you know causes that is causing the ship to be stuck in this time loop he is however able you know eventually to fix the problem by extending the loop and um allowing the pirates and you know the crew to to choose to either stay in it or go on anyway i i actually don't want to go deeply into too many spoilers but i i think we probably being doctor who fans are whovians are going to come up with the idea that the doctor is probably going to figure out a way to you know, help everybody or to get them out of the situation. I, I left out one important detail, and that's that because the ship is st stuck in a time loop, um, characters are able to die or be killed and are actually kind of respawned very video game-esque <laughs> into, you know, when the when the loop resets, all of a sudden, poof, there they are back again. 
Uh, however, they do seem to have uh, they do have their memory intact and can remember, you know, dying, which is obviously kind of traumatic. And Martha does go through this uh, situation. She is killed, and um, I don't want to call it regeneration because of the you know obvious Doctor Who definition of what that means, but is respawned and um, you know comes back when the time loop resets and comes back. So they use the the Garrier uses that to his to his advantage many times to to give us some kind of moments of tension. Um, but I do feel like towards the end of the book that that because you know there aren't any like really really high stakes that somebody might actually die that they're you know going to be respawned. Um, does kind of take away from a bit of the threat but anyway the threat really wasn't ever coming from the badger pirates or from the bridge crew that's where the conflict is uh the badger badger pirates aren't scary characters they're they're more silly characters quite endearing characters at points too <laughs> honestly uh you get to you get to like archie quite a bit at least i did and um you do see them kind of start to deal with the fact of you know who they are and who their leader is and um whether they're um, kind of what's what's their lot in life, and they they, they have a lot of growth. It's 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 cool, and the um, also the crew of the Brilliant has you know a lot of conflict, and the the captain of the uh, Brilliant is a bit of a villain in her own right, just as much as the pirate captain is um, aboard the uh, Badger pirate craft as well. So, like I said, I, I think because it's a book and because it's um, Yes, it's been out for a long time, but I think I'm going to... Re- <laughs> I think I'm actually going to resist going full spoiler and talking about the end of the book, just because I think it's a good enough one that if you uh, do want to take a time, take a little bit of time to check it out, you know, like I said, it runs two and a half hours on two CDs. It's... it's, Or I, I believe Audible, like let's... <laughs> let's talk modern technology here. I believe Audible and uh, other audiobook um, services carry it. Two and a half hour listen... Again, read, read by Freema very well, and um, certainly be worth your time. Yeah, I think I'm going to resist the urge to totally spoil the ending and um, just go on to talking about kind of in general. I think it's a good audiobook. Um, I like the kind of fun and light nature of the adventure. Um, it really taps into the uh, Tenth Doctor and Martha season quite well, or you can punch it, you know, put it right into that series three um, and, it, and it fits quite well. Uh, Simon Garrier is very on, uh, very, very good at capturing those characters, especially those characters at the moment when this happens. And um, yeah, I think it's 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 light nature is is I keep saying that, but it's the reason it's surprising is because honestly the book has a lot of really uh, you know fairly dark moments. We're talking pirate attack, we're talking violence, we're talking characters being killed, some of them repeatedly. Um, a ship stuck in a time loop, um, some, you know, some fairly dark con- conceptual things, but it's never once played really dark and heavy. It's it's generally just a fun read with a lot of laughs, which I actually like when Doctor Who can be that way, but it, not that it, you know, gives up the, it doesn't go full, um, full comedy, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a nice balance of, of dark and, and humor. The characters are odd and fun, um, I think I mentioned enough about that earlier, but um, Martha really gets a chance to shine here. And I don't know if it's just because Freema, you know, is reading this to me, you know, uh, that I 
really kind of dive into Martha and her experiences here, but it is a very Martha-centric novel, uh, which is cool because I feel like we don't get a whole lot of Martha-centric anything in um, in the series itself, and when we do, it's all about her pining over how she um, is in love with the Doctor and da-da-da, instead of focusing on how she's, you know, really quite an impressive character being, um, you know, a young female Doctor of African descent, and... Um, yeah, she's just a, such an impressive character that never gets to be that impressive on screen, and she was always kind of disappointing uh, for that reason, and not because of you know Freema or even because of Martha Jones, but just because I don't ever think she was used to her potential. They played into that you know she's got a crush on the Doctor thing too much, which they often did too much, in my opinion, in the Russell Davies era. Um, not going to get into that. That could be a bit of a controversial opinion, but I'm not a big fan of it. Um, anyway. <laughs> Uh, so Martha really gets a chance to shine in the pirate loop and, um, she gets a lot of character development and that we don't really get on the show. And like I said, she, she is killed at a point in this. So she really starts to fully understand the stakes of what she's doing, you know, out running around in the universe with the doctor and, um, you know, that this is dangerous, you know, she could have just lost her life and her family would have never known, you know, she reflects on her, she just jumped into the TARDIS with the Doctor, and her family would have never known what happened to her. She's out there in the universe, you know, and she just would have disappeared entirely from, from her life, and she she's concerned about what that would have done to them, and, um, you know, we know her family from, from the television series, and it's, yeah, she's just really given a chance to shine, and she's also given a chance to be the detective. The Doctor gets separated twice from Martha into different time zones of the ship, and uh, because time is flowing differently, that leaves her, you know, um, for what I believe is days of time where she's having to do, you know, put together the pieces. She's the one having to kind of take action and figure out what's going on. Um, yeah, it's 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 a cool story, and it's a really cool story for Martha. Um, it's, however, probably not what I would call essential reading. I feel this way a lot about a lot of the... NSA books, the new series adventure books, and that that they're all pretty good reads. They're they're quick reads. They're they're generally light. They don't dive too hard into series continuity or um, you know stuff about you know Doctor Who history like like you know the the novels, the post Sylvester McCoy era novels, the the New Adventures series, the Virgin New Adventures series. Um, you know, the dove hard, hard into kind of, you know, putting, setting up a backstory for Doctor Who and continuing that, um, what, they, what would come to be known as the Cartmel Master Plan into, you know, the, the 90s with that series of books. Uh, this one is, is very much meant to exist as a, in a, in a nice coexistence to, to the TV series. It doesn't add too much, doesn't take too much away from it, but it does give you some other adventures with the characters that you love from the series. However, for the most part, there are a couple of exceptions, but I feel like almost none of them are like essential reading. Like you like Doctor Who, you gotta read this book. Pirate Loop as well, is not like that as well, and then I'm not sure that they should they have they should be that. Um, it's just a little bit different experience from something like uh, the New Adventures or the Eighth Doctor Adventures, all the stuff that was happening during the Wilderness years that were. Um, and I'm not going to say they're all essential reading either, but they were setting up a continuity itself. They were a continuation of the show. They were the show's new official continuity. Um, these are just kind of some side trips. 
And for better or worse, most of them, are, like I said, are fun, uh, light and quick reads, and I, I would suggest them. Even more fun and even more quick if you pick up one of these great BBC audiobook versions. So usually read by somebody involved with the cast, and if not, they, of course, have a great talented readers all the time so one more thing i did want to point out about the pirate loop is the similarities to the peter capaldi 10th series uh penultimate adventure the world enough in time and that's a script by stephen moffat and it just thought it was interesting because this novel which predates it by about five years i believe four years um no five years it has a very similar situation with this large craft or this large spacecraft that is stuck in different time zones uh also the story like the, the kind of the, some of the plot points are very similar and that is uh um the doctor at one point in this gets transmats himself to the bridge of the um of the brilliant and it takes because of its time loop um difference or the difference in time zones uh where a transmat is usually instantaneous it takes you know a long time for him to transmat up to there uh similarly in the capaldi story the the doctor and um is trying to rescue um bill and gets stuck in a lift that is coming down <laughs> the ship but because it exists in two different time zones i believe the way it goes is that it just takes you know an infinitely long amount of time for them to come down the lift um yeah and it's just the basic story so the companion they get separated they're stuck in different time zones companion is killed and resurrected also very similar to world enough in time um this book is much lighter and has a much happier ending than uh that we would eventually see in the doctor falls the the, the second part of the world enough in time um anyway you you probably are all familiar with that if you're not go check out that episode i'm not going to talk a whole lot about it but i did find the similarities between garrier's book the pirate loop and stephen moffat's script for that to be um what I would say is more than accidental. Like this feels like it was um, an influence upon that idea, but who knows? I mean, it's not like I find it like totally impossible that Moffat came up with that on his own. It's a very Doctor Who-y idea, right? So anyway, final thoughts on this. Overall, the book was a highly enjoyable audiobook. I think Freema Adjaman did a great job reading it. Um, she's, a, she's a good reader and she goes on and reads many of the audiobooks that were produced for the doctor and martha um yeah like i said it's not really essential reading by any means but it's it's harmless doctor who fun if that's what you're in the mood for i mean i think i think you'll get a kick out of it it has some of the like silliness of some of the early seventh doctor stories to me like badger faced pirates seems like something that would just you know that the doctor and mel would have come up against in the early part of sylvester mccoy's run which maybe isn't a glowing endorsement because some people that's a much maligned part of the series but um certainly had that kind of sense of silly fun of what can we do with uh doctor who and what what's you know something that's different and kind of quirky and funny um yeah um i guess uh let's go ahead and give this thing i'm gonna go ahead and give this thing a grade this time we're gonna be using badger pirates and i am going to give the pirate loop by simon garrier i'm gonna give this 3.5 out of 5 badger pirates and um so yeah i think it's definitely worth especially if you come across a copy of this thing used or um 
you know, whatever, happen to have an Audible credit and don't know what to do with it. This uh certainly worth the two and a half hours. It's a, it's a quick read, and it's a lot of fun. So that's uh, really all we have to say about it. Uh, stay tuned at the end of the show. Uh, we're going to hit the button on the randomizer, and we'll find out what book we will be reading, or sorry, what audio adventure we will be uh, checking out for next month. <laughs> Hello fellow time travelers, I'm Tony Witt with the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the podcast in which we undertake the insert adjective here task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. I'm joined by... Dalton Hughes. And by... Alison Fitzsafry. And we record our episodes twice a month. You're listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. Enjoy your travels. And so that brings us to our third and final review of this month's episode of the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. And that is going to be the 10th Doctor graphic novel, The Fountains of Forever. From TARDIS Data Core. The Fountains of Forever was the third volume of the Titan Comics series of Doctor Who, the 10th Doctor comic collections. It collected issues 11 through 15 of the series. The Fountains of Forever was written by Nick Habadzis. Artists, Elena Casagrande, Eleonora Carlini, Rachel Stott, and Leonardo Romero. Colorists, Ariana Florian and Hi-Fi. Returning to New York from her travels with the Doctor, Gabby has never felt more alive. But for the Doctor, Gabby, and Cindy, this is only the start of their greatest adventure yet, as a secret auction, a cult organization, an ancient artifact, an aging movie idol, a cosmic conspiracy and a cosmic threat from the heart of the universe collide in New York City to threaten all of reality. A history by Lars Pearson and Lance Parkin dates The Fountains of Forever as taking place in 2014, contemporary to its release. Let Emma fill in some. Here's the synopsis. Emma will probably read this. The Tenth Doctor and Gabby Gonzalez are back in New York, but there's barely time for Gabby to catch up with her best friend Cindy Wu before a cosmic terror courses chaos it before a cosmic terror causes chaos across the city when an aging horror star is empowered by an extraterrestrial artifact the doctor gabby and cindy are swept up in the biggest adventure yet writer nick abadzis and artist elena casagrande eleonora carlini rachel stott and leonardo romero ramp up the stakes to universe shattering levels and this collects the doctor who 10th doctor titan comic series number 11 through 15 um yeah. It's dated contemporary to its publication date and takes place on modern Earth uh, circa 2014. Um, that's via a history. And um, joining me to talk about the Fountains of Forever is uh, two friends of mine, fellow podcaster and co-host of the TV Junkyard podcast, David Andrews, and a good friend of mine from the Chicago TARDIS convention, um, or that I met at the Chicago TARDIS convention, and um, hopefully uh, somebody who is a perspe- prospective podcaster himself, uh, Asad Kesji, and um, we are looking for, or I want to take you right to the conversation. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I did, due to technical difficulties, um, lose the first portion of this conversation, but I believe most of what we did was just kind of like run down what it was about uh, when we first read The Fountains of Forever. I believe Assad said, like myself, he was following the series. I think actually all three of us said we were following the series on a regular basis. Um, the Titan Comics single issues, 10th Doctor series. 
and the first time that we read this and i that and i mentioned i had recently picked up the hardcover um graphic novel version of it and um i think that's kind of where we 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 cut in here I, I don't remember for sure i know i lost about 10 minutes of the discussion about uh, fountains of forever so uh, i'm gonna drop you in right at the very earliest point that i have i believe we just got done discussing uh, our history with the piece and we're gonna dive into the narrative so uh, i hope you enjoy what remains of this fantastic discussion discussion with david nasad and uh here we go some reason the trade paperbacks in like in, at least in my local comic store they were getting the hardbacks but not always the trade paperbacks when the compilations were coming out so okay. i did not actually get uh, i'm i'm missing several of the um, actual paperback uh, compilations so oh yeah i need to um into fixing that <laughs> yeah actually and i just when we uh when it like randomly got picked for the show, um, I picked up a copy of the actual, which actually I think you can see in the background, but the uh, hardcover uh, graphic novel. The only other things that I had in my collection were the actual single issues of this. And I kind of said, well, do I want to go pull all the issues? Or I, I always kind of want an excuse to have a copy of it too, because I like the story. But um, yeah, so there you have it, new uh, hardcover. So let's uh, jump in and I'll start with you, David. Like. What do you think of the story overall? Is this one you you enjoyed a lot? And, and were you following the Tenth Doctor comics? Do you have a lot to compare it to, or is this uh, kind of a one-off um, that you happen to read? I actually followed the Tenth Doctor comics right up until the end of this arc. Um, I think I actually stopped with Volume Three because, yeah, as I mentioned before, it was just kind of getting a little bit too hard to follow everything at once. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I read up through Volume 3 before, and uh, this uh, series in particular, it's uh, actually really, really good. I've uh, um, grown to enjoy it a lot. I, almost, I like it almost better than some of the TV seasons. Um, yeah. It's a very enjoyable read. What about you, Asad? Was it something... Uh you enjoyed and you did say you were following issue by issue is this uh, yeah. one that stood out in your memory uh, i mean it was entertaining to reread it i don't think it was anything overly spectacular but it's it's pretty well written there's um, some nice uh, continuity and falling back to the um, original classic show as well mm -hmm. so that's always fun and um yeah so it's an entertaining read um like I said, nothing, nothing overly uh, outstanding. I thought, so. yeah, not not mind blowing, but but entertaining. <laughs> yeah. So the tenth Doctor in the Titan comics, I believe, at least in my in my opinion, was the one that um, I felt like. What's his name? Um, Nick Abadzis. Abadzis. Does anyone know how to say <laughs> Nick Abadzis? I think it's the the name of the the writer who is the head writer on Tenth Doctor. Uh, I believe wrote for a couple of the others as well. Um, but he really seems to get the voice of the 10th Doctor, a maybe a little bit more so than I thought the people handling of the 11th and 12th Doctors did. It really felt like it fit uh, David Tennant, his era, and um, you could really hear his voice coming through, like he really just got the character. Also, uh, the Titan comics, for those that don't know or aren't familiar with it, have their own set of companions. So this is happening, you know, in between... Um, I believe this is, is this, is the, the entire thing is set post Donna, but pre 
specials or waters regeneration yeah. is that where yeah yeah pre waters and mars um so it's it's we get gabby gonzalez who is the main companion but we also in this story get a little more of her friend cindy Wu, who becomes the uh other companion what do you what are you guys thoughts about the titan companions and then if you know a little more about the other series feel free to comment on those but like the most all of them sans the 12th doctor which kind of which kind of fit right into the series that was going at the time right. used new um companions at least the 10th and 11th doctors but i thought were very distinct characters all over. um sure i mean um well i mean uh, just uh, for one thing it's uh, interesting that like gabby gonzalez is really the first and possibly only latinx companion that um, we got and um depending on whether you consider chang lee to be an actual companion or not um cindy Wu would also be the first probably East, uh, no, I guess Chinese American companion mm -hmm. um, they've got. And um, I mean, it's, uh, again, I, I thought most of the companions that they did were pretty good. Um, so yeah, well-written, it's an interesting, they've got, they do explore some of the things about people who go off with the doctor and uh, leave their friends and all behind and um, mm -hmm. how those friends might feel about that. Right, what's going on? So um, yeah, and this story, Gabby just kind of disappears from, and her friend hasn't heard from her in so long. And so at the very beginning of the story, we get that confrontation, like the, the where have you been? What are you doing? Are you crazy? You're running off with this man? Right. Um, and then when she hears the story, it's like obviously you are crazy. You're delusional. And <laughs> so, um, David, nope. do you have any thoughts about? Gabby or Cindy or any of the other, I mean, Alice and the 11th Doctor. Yeah, uh, the one thing I like about Gabby, maybe not as a character, but uh, in her relation to it being in the comic medium, is she has that art book that mm -hmm. she draws throughout the series. And I always found uh, that they use that really creatively throughout the run because they'll do entire panels of just her and her notebook and what she's been drawing and what she's thinking about, yeah. which is not something you can really do on TV. I, was, I, I always thought that was a neat slant. Yeah, it gives her a different um, way of kind of expressing her concerns and her wonder besides constantly being like, oh, doctor, what is that? You know, like the typical kind of companion thing. You get a little bit of introspection of her, you know, and she can, you can kind of get to understand her, you know, her concerns and what she's experiencing through that. And so, yeah, that was pretty, um, and a pretty excellent idea in my opinion, but agreed. Um, and yeah, that, and I think, both, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying I think that the character of Cleo also reappears later in the Tenth Doctor um, comics. So. She does, I believe, and I can't remember in what regard. It's been so long since I read a lot of them. Like this is really the, I think the first time I've revisited this stuff since I read it initially, like way back. But I remember really liking Cleo and when figuring she was kind of a one-off character, and then I, I believe she does come back, and I was pretty happy about that. So. Um, so let's, yeah, let's consider her a companion. Any, any thoughts on, on Cleo and the way she, because she's really gets to be the doctor's companion in the story a little more so. The other two are working out there. Well, and Cindy as well, but Gabby gets to play companion to uh, Dorothy slash Osiren God or Osiren computer program, actually, but. <laughs> so many people being companions to. <laughs> really. Right. Um, yeah, no, Cleo was, um, I mean, she's, definitely falls into, I guess, the mold of a more um, action-oriented companion, maybe like a Leela or River Song. Um, she's ready to punch out or shoot out uh, 
things or enemies as needed. <laughs> right. And I guess, um, and I guess visually also, it's um, interesting that you know she's kind of like a heavier African American woman, which is not again sort of companion what we usually see on TV. Right. Not typical like plus size African American. So these are. Uh, the I guess that that's something that kind of. I mean, you mentioned Chang Lee earlier, um, and Perry in the Six Doctors companion was supposed to be American. The actress was was not. But um, I'm trying to think if there are any others. But I think one thing that's unique about these characters is they are all American uh, companions, which is interesting. So this story also, as as Asad mentioned early on, um, features the return of a classic series villain that. Um, I'm sure there's so much Doctor Who stuff out there. I can't say for sure that they haven't returned before, but this is the first time I encountered the Osirens again after Pyramids of Mars. Um, I'm sure there's big Finnish stories out there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there is. I, I haven't heard any of There has to be a big Finnish. I'm sure there's a novel or two as well, <laughs> but it's just the way things go. But yeah, I don't believe I've, I've heard or experienced any of them besides this, but... Uh, was that a pleasant surprise or a surprise to you in reading this that they showed back up? And, and David, how uh, how aware of Pyramids of Mars are? Have you seen Pyramids of Mars? And did you know they were returning classic series? No, this is my introduction to the Sirens. Were you shocked by that, Asad? Was that a, a, a pleasant surprise or maybe you saw it coming? Yeah. I mean, uh, there, I don't think there's that much... Um, and not that many clues or anything that they lay out beforehand. Um, to no, show no, no. Like the pyramids, I guess, but that really could be <laughs> anything in the world of Doctor Who, right? They even make a reference to Stargate in one of the <laughs> dialogue. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. they have like a, some pretty streamlined uh, mummy of uh, Sutek that uh, turns up. <laughs> yep. Yeah, the uh, mummy looks like she got a, a makeover. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it was an interesting use of um, of the characters. And at first, it kind of seemed like one of those, and not not to cut down too much on John Nathan Turner, but John Nathan Turner, when he was running the show, had it had a habit, and we're going to probably talk about this a little bit in our next review of Arc and Affinity, of just kind of like, you know, hey, you know, you know what people, Doctor Who fans really liked? They really liked this classic villain. Let's bring that back for this one, and just kind of plunking it into a story without any real... So when they first showed up, I felt like maybe that... That was kind of my initial reaction to it. I had eventually warmed to it when getting to know the character of Anubis and the way that they used him as kind of a, a counterpoint to Sutek and that he was, even though he was the you know, right. descendant of Sutek, that he was different than him and he didn't, um, he was kind of unintentionally going to destroy the universe, but. <laughs> um, no, I, again, I, I don't have the frame of reference for the Pyramids of Mars, but uh, from what I can tell, I really liked Anubis as a villain because it wasn't as a straightforward villain you know it was uh you definitely didn't exactly know which way he swung right until the very last page yeah. and even yeah. then you, it still leaves a lot of questions as to well, okay well why did he just do what he just did right like i guess we could talk spoilers on here you know him destroying yeah, his sister robot <laughs> yeah. and i mean like and even though you might think that that's kind of the end of it but he also turns up later in the comics and uh, for mm -hmm. an extended period so you get to yeah, and if I remember correctly, he kind of gets to play the role of, um, I mean, not really companion to the Doctor, but he's kind of a kind of a buddy of the Doctors and actually is able to help him out in situations later on, Yeah, um, which is kind of cool, I thought. Uh, because I like the character, again, I, I thought it was cool that, you know, he got a chance. Oh, see, so yeah. 
I thought for sure they were setting him up for being like overarching villain. Yeah. 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 I would think, but <laughs> yeah, no, I think he ends up still being, and maybe, maybe good guy is a bit of an oversell, but like he's, he's a little, maybe more of an anti-hero than uh, as a right out villain. And, you know, I mean, he, I guess he lays out and even in fountains of forever that he's, you know, got this moral compass and this, uh, um, he doesn't want to destroy life. He doesn't want to, you know, be cruel. He's only doing this because it's his only chance to cross over. And he's already, you know, suffered for so long and he's so old and all these things. And um, I think it's cool that at the end of it, he, instead of being, you know, the maniacal, typical Doctor Who villain, he actually decides to, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I'll, I'll take on this suffering and I'll, if it means saving existence or the universe or whatever so um just takes a little you know pages and pages of the doctor talking into it but <laughs> um so it's and i mean it's uh in some ways i think this um story doesn't really give us any particular bad guys because even like that hanif and um eric what's his name uh, yeah the, the black pyramid are I mean, they're bad guys, but, you know, they're not, like, totally. They they have their motivation. They're not, uh, they, I mean, they're just not out-and-out out bad guys. It's, right, yeah. Everybody. Empathy for them as well. Um, yeah, that was one of the things I found really cool about the story is kind of the layers that everybody had because um, um, the actress Dorothy obviously is motivated. Um, you think at first, oh, she's an, she's an old retired actor. She's obviously being vain, right? She's motivated by it. But no, you find out she's actually been diagnosed with a terminal disease and she's, you know, trying to save her life. And um, yeah, same with the cultists. They, uh, I'm not sure you ever get to feeling bad for them. They're still kind of crazy cultists, but it, they do have their, they're not just out and out evil, <laughs> take over the world types. They actually feel very betrayed by the fact that these, creatures are not gods and are not you know coming to take them away with them to uh right. they they find out their unimportance in the universe you know like like i guess we all do at some point and have that crushing realization of yeah or i should maybe not say we all but we possibly many of us can relate to that we've seen it in doctor who plenty of times right so. <laughs> um so yeah i think uh that was interesting to me. David, do you have any thoughts on any of the other characters at, at all in them? Oh, yeah. Um, as far as, like, the cultists go, yeah, I thought it was really interesting that uh, the main guy, I forget his name, Eric, was it? It was Eric, like, yeah. It's something he, Scandinavian, kind of similar to my name. <laughs> yeah. Like, he kept being basically shown that he was one bad decision away from making a mistake that he was going to regret throughout the arc. And then sure enough, he goes and does it and results in like the direct death of his friend. Yeah. I thought that was a very interesting little mini arc within all that. And like the other guy who devoted his whole life just to basically die at the hands of his God. That was also another, just, I don't know. That was a much well, sometimes you get these side stories and they're not very satisfying. That one I felt was was overall a very satisfying side story for those characters in that arc. Yeah, and I didn't know if there was always a little uncertain whether there was some subtext going on between those two characters. Or that was just something I was inadvertently yeah. picking up or if that was meant to be there. So 
Yeah, and I fully thought the way that he reacted and the way it kind of played out that I I fully, you know, pegged them as being a couple of some sort. Um, or at least e even if it wasn't like maybe it was unrequited love or some sort of like uh, but yeah, something something beyond like he's my buddy because of just the the agony that is, you know, that he's in at when he's killed and yeah, at least at least to the point where they're like lifelong partners of some sort. Uh, there was something very deep connection between them, whatever you want to make of that. They're not explicit about it, but uh, same thing with Dorothy and um, I'm forgetting her name, the um, kind of, it would have been her assistant or whatever. Vivian, um, chauffeur in the chauffeur's uniform. Yep. Yep. Vivian, that's right. They definitely have, and I, again, it doesn't put terms on it, but they have a very deep connection as well and are, are you know, very important to one another. Same thing as uh, Gabby and Cindy. Like we we get a you know a somewhat confession scene where Cindy is very upset and with the doctor about endangering Gabby and you know how dare you take her away and put her in all these situations that don't you know that I love her and you can read that as a romantic thing I think but you also don't have to I mean, it doesn't have to be it's just that kind of the way that they are just these very important people to one another and that's what I thought was interesting about the story because you have all of these I wouldn't I don't know if I want to call them couplings but kind of you have all of these like people that are responding to one another and just like have these like this person that is their rock or their most important person then there you have then you have the doctor and Anubis who are the like kind of opposite of that like they're um, so I think there's a lot of like layers and cool things going on and a lot of stories that they don't have to go into like major sidesteps and show you all of this the backstory of these characters you get it all in the little amount of page count that they have but it's all done really well so that's those are the things that i found fulfilling about this the actual like plot of the story was kind of typical doctor who you know <laughs> but, um, but yeah there's lots of good stuff and that doesn't always come through in the titan stuff for me like some of it lacks some of that depth i think at times it does make me want to go back and read um reread if if I had enough time to <laughs> reread some of these old compilations again, yeah, so. yeah. In general, I would say my impression of Titan Comics is that it's all it's all of a very like decent standard. It's all good or from good to great. Some of it's not as you know good as others. But how much have you guys read of the other Titan stuff? Is that I read all of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tried so hard. And I, I just fell off of it. I mainly it was a monetary decision that I couldn't keep spending the amount right. I was spending. Yeah. But. I think I made like three volumes into each doctor and maybe like issue one of nine, eight and three when they were right. starting to really get expansive. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't even quite get to the four doctors, but yeah. I was like right at the tipping point before the fourth doctor started and I just kind of slid off to mostly yeah. same reason, financial. Mm. I jumped back in for some of those abbreviated series. Like I think I read the fourth doctor, the first um, short series that they did. I think I bought the graphic novel of the seventh doctor one, but still haven't read it. <laughs> it's uh, I got it signed by Chris Jones at, at Chicago Tardis, but it's uh, still, I haven't, I haven't cracked it yet. I need to one of these days. So, well, that sound means that we are running out of time. So 
I do want to get you guys uh, final thoughts. And um, like we always do on these uh, podcasts, it's a video junkyard tradition and I've carried it over to this uh, podcast. Uh, give it a grade and we're going to grade it out of five Osirens out of this uh, for this one. So um, just any final thoughts you have and a grade out of five Osirens. What do you guys think of the Fountains of Forever? And we'll start with you, David. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything more to be said that hasn't been already said. It's a very decent story. Uh, very good characters. I really like it a lot. I would rate it probably four to five a siren. Yeah, again, there's really nothing that wrong with it. Um, it's a pretty entertaining read. I'd probably go with 3.5 um, Osirens out of five. And I, speaking of other Titan books, uh, the Third Doctor collection is pretty good too. It's written by Paul for So yeah, um, it's one I never got my hands on. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't mind reading that. Yeah, I think I, I land, we're going to be pretty close on this one. I think it's, um, I guess the only thing I didn't really say before was that I think that some of the best comic stories there are ones that um, are the kind that you probably couldn't do on television. This is a show, this is definitely a story that would certainly struggle even in the modern era on TV. It's just got a big grand scope to it. It's mm -hmm. you know New York City and, and buildings and um, you know people flying around and <laughs> uh, pyramids and all this stuff. So um, good comic stories often take that to their advantage. It can go too far out into left field, I think, but um, it, it told a good story that probably wouldn't have worked on TV. So I, we are running out of time here. I'm going to just go ahead and agree with David, I think, on this one. I really did enjoy this one. This is a good arc for the 10th Doctor Comics. I'm going to give it four out of five Osirens. So um, I do want to thank you guys for, for being here. And um, hopefully uh, it was a pleasure to uh, revisit the Fountains of Forever. Sounds like it, like it was for me. Um, mm -hmm. And... Yeah, I hope uh, you guys will come back to the uh, Police Box in the Junkyard podcast and uh, chat with us again. So yeah, Interesting if we get an 11th Doctor collection with Absalom Doc as one of the companions. <laughs> yes, yeah. That, I remember that getting to that point at some point, uh, too. I feel like I need to go back and re really, really reread this stuff if we ever get a chance, but it's, it's a time issue at this point. So thanks again, and this has been the uh, Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Like we do at the end of every show, it's time to hit the big red button on the machine we call the randomizer and find out which Doctor Who television story we will be reviewing next time around. Go ahead and hit that button. Seriously, you can't even push a button by yourself. I need a raise. And there we have it. In all in time and space, where did we end up this time? Next time on the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast, we will be talking about the TV story The Demons of Punjab starring Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor. Our audio adventure is the audio documentary Big Finish Talks Back, Paul McGann. And our book review will be Spotlight on Doctor Who, The First Baker Years Part 1 by John Peel. I cannot contain my excitement. Thanks again for listening. I hope you will consider joining us next time for our discussion about a Doctor Who television story, as well as our discussions about Doctor Who audio adventures, both audio books and audio plays. Also, we will be doing discussions of Doctor Who novels, nonfiction books, and other fun stuff. Until next time, I have been your host, Eric Branson, and this has been 
the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Special thanks to all of our guests and contributors. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a proud member of the Video Junkyard podcast family and can be found on most major podcast providers including SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Podcast Addict, and Spotify. Doctor Who theme composed by Ron Grainer, arranged as Doctor Who retro theme by Neon Frontier. All rights to Doctor Who and its related materials belong to the BBC. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast.